Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to round three, series three, whatever you want to go and call it, of the IOCO Inspire series. Um, I'm really excited about this one. We'll do the intros in a minute. Hopefully you can hear a little bit of music that's running in the background. We'll ask you after the intro from Joe uh, if you know what it comes from and what the relevance is to Rob. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see if anyone knows this one. So we're going to go and kick off. Please, though, before we do get started, if you've got questions, leave it in the chat. We might pick those up, um, but I definitely want to hear your questions. Definitely go and uh, leave it in the Q&A. There should be a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom call there. It's a lot easier for us to go and pick up. Rob and I will both go to see them and we'll try to answer all the ones uh, that you actually post. So over to you, Joe. Thanks so much, Colin. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Joe Pohl. I'm the group CFO of IOCO. And it is really with great pleasure that I welcome you back to season three. It's been a highly successful Inspire series. And when you go back and reflect on them, I think it's been no mean feat to get to where we are today. I think specifically, as the world adjusts to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, sustainable business recovery requires leaders that focus on so much more than the bottom line. And I say that as the CFO. Leaders that engage, that inspire everyone in the organization with far more emphasis on purpose, trust, and even more importantly now, empathy and how we live it. But I suppose the question is, what does that really actually mean in practice? And more particularly, with the unique challenge of working remotely. I think we used to be able to feel our people and we can't necessarily feel them so much as we have to see them and assess how they're doing. So please do stay tuned. Um, Colin Eels, as a good friend and colleague over the years, speaks to Rob Paddock, who's the co-founder of Get Smarter, um, on what it means in terms of purposeful leadership, what it means to him and individuals and how we can lead and inspire during our recovery, because we're all recovering together. I think thank you for making the time, first of all, to invest in yourselves in terms of purposefulness and also to watch um, what promises to be an insightful episode of the Ayoko Inspire series. So please post your questions. Sardes put something up in the chat already. We'll pick them up later. Um, but before I hand over to Colin, I was really intrigued by your post um, on LinkedIn earlier. One, yesterday you post, um, posted something that struck a chord with me. I am homeschooling at the moment with my kids. And I suppose the question was, why should you send your children to an online school resonated? And if there's anyone that can probably answer it, Rob, I'm hoping it's you, having seen what Get Smart has done um, in terms of your business. And the other post that you put up quite a while ago, Colin, that intrigued me was whether or not purposeful companies outperform their profit-driven peers. And what was interesting is the response to that had a unanimous yes so at about 70%, no at 12 and 18% of people sitting on the fence. And I'd love to see what comes out of the session today in terms of what inspires us to be slightly different. So over to you. Good luck. I'll be listening and learning and I'll catch you on the other side. Awesome. Thank you very much, Joe. We'll, we'll see you at the end. You're coming in at the end to close out, right? So we've got to remember to allow a little bit of time for that. Remember when you come in, come in with a question because we're going to give you uh, five minutes so that you can post that killer question that you want Rob to answer as we go and close out. Um, Sorted. I and I just did another post the other day where I asked the question, do you think Clubhouse is going to sustain? Do you think Clubhouse is going to fade away? Uh, what the hell is Clubhouse? I think 85% people came back with what the hell is Clubhouse. You've got to look at Clubhouse, guys. It is absolutely awesome. Unfortunately, it's not available on Android. And I'm going totally off topic. Let's get back to where we want to be. And that's purposeful education. Rob, a massive warm welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. So I want to, I want to, let's get started. You know, couple of big questions and themes that I want to run for, you know, how did you do what you did? Why did you do what you did? What are you planning to do next? 
And obviously, during those conversations, trying to understand from you um, the approach that you've taken, take the insights out that can be applied if they can be applied in a corporate environment. So let's just start there. Why don't you just introduce yourself with who you are and what you have done at a very high level? I'm sure everyone who's dialed in already knows, but just in case. Thanks, Colin. So um, my name is Robert Paddock, and thanks very much, everyone, for, for joining us today. It's incredibly humbling. Um, uh, I guess a, a, a rather multifaceted uh, career. I actually, my undergraduate education was actually in music, and I went on to become a music teacher and a corporate team um, building facilitator with, with African percussion. I uh, was part of a startup in London uh, short, shortly after Varsity. Uh, got some wonderful experience just in the, in the, startup, exp, um, in the startup realm. Um, and then something kind of interesting happened, which is that I developed tinnitus, which is, a, which is a perpetual ringing in your ears from the noise damage from all the music over the years. And so at that point, I had to make a very big decision, kind of which direction do you take your life in? Um, I had always had a passion and a love for teaching uh, and through just a, a, a series of fortuitous events, managed to then partner with my brother and my father and my mother to launch a series of online, sh uh, online short courses with the University of Cape Town in what was in my dad's business, which was called Paddocks, Paddocks being a property law firm. Um, those, those programs were put together <laughs> with sticky tape and wire. Um, and it was, you know, when you look back at it now, you think, oh, like how, how did that ever, how did that ever pass? But that was, you know, that was 15 plus years ago. Um, and online education was very much in its infancy. Um, that relationship continued to grow. And off the back of the momentum we were building it with these property law courses, we recognized that there was an immense opportunity for, for working professionals outside of the property industry to have access to university accredited online courses that could meaningfully add to their, to their career prospects. Um, we recognized that the, the world of work was rapidly changing and one of the requirements of modern working professionals was to constantly learn, relearn and unlearn throughout their lives. Um, and we figured that, that the combination of a powerful university partner with a flexible and accessible online modality of delivery was an interesting mechanism to meet that need. Um, so we launched Get Smarter. Um, Get Smarter started with a series of short courses with the University of Cape Town. We continued to work with the University of Stellenbosch as well as the University of Advertisrant, all in the short course domain. Um, we then branched out into, we actually had an interesting period, which maybe Colin, we can, we can come back to you if, if, you, if you're interested. Um, we're out of Get Smarter, we then launched the series of five other businesses, all ed tech related. Um, but <laughs> the, 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 the humbling experience was that, was that four of the five businesses failed. Um, thankfully, Get Smarter was still strong. Um, the one that, that succeeded and continues to exist is a business called Hubble Studios, which I'm still involved in. Um, but we, we really had, we, I think we'd underappreciated what it meant and how lucky you are when you have a business that works. Um, and the sheer, the sheer kind of convergence of forces and factors that are beyond your control that actually allow, allow a business to be, to be successful. Um, so we continued to, to grow, get smarter. Um, we then launched a series of, of degrees with the University of Cape Town. We then uh, realized that one of our major ambitions was to grow internationally. Um, and so we, we went on a, a literal campaign to go get the, the world's top universities to partner with us. Uh, got our lucky break in two, 2015 with MIT. We launched the MIT uh, short course in FinTech. Um, that program got 2,900 students from 130 countries around the world. And we literally had to reinvent our business overnight, 24-7 operations, servicing students from every corner of the globe. Um, we had to just about triple our staff base in a, in a, in a matter of months. It was kind of crazy growth. Um, we uh, then continued to, to get momentum in terms of the, um, in terms of the university partnerships uh, with Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, London School of Economics, and many more. Um, and ultimately led to the the uh, the sale of Get Smarter to Nasdaq listed to you in 2017. Um, 
wonderful, like incredible learning experience, um, also, also very humbly and incredibly tiring. Um, about six months after we were acquired, I ended up leaving the business. I mean, honestly, I was just just very burnt out. And I think that- So let, let's let's just pause you there, Rob, because we're going to do the stuff after Get Smarter, after 2017. Cool. We've, been, yeah. we've got to keep a few secrets. But I think <laughs> what I want to know is how much you sold Get Smarter for, to put it in the context of what you have achieved. Uh, we sold it for $103 million. Can we just say that one more time? Um, $103 million. So when you started out, did you ever believe that you would create something which would become so big? No, de- I mean, definitely not. No ways. I mean, we, I think like many entrepreneurs, you're just trying to make sure that you can, that you can pay salaries at the end of the month, you know? <laughs> um, let alone thinking how in years time you could have a, 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 a any sort of exit. Um, I think that that again, there's a kind of like there's a there's a naivety that's required in in starting a business, which is just like a naivety, a combination of naivety and optimism, which is required to start a business. Um, which, yeah, I guess, in the kind of trough of disillusionment that follows that, you realize just how hard this is and how many obstacles there are and how many mountains there are to climb and so on. Um, I would say that probably up until up until 20, late 2016, I had no concept of the fact that we could actually sell this business. It was literally kind of next proximate objective to next proximate objective just and and a lot of it uh, and because we took very very little outside fund in fact we took no outside funding until 2015 you really are living um to make sure that you can pay the next round of salaries and the next round of of, of google fees and so on so so no definitely didn't okay now i know that you're going to say there was a lot of luck but let's go back to the the starting point and unpack uh, that a little bit because you know the um Let's just think through some dates. This was sort of 2007, 2008, when you started to think about creating this platform called Get Smarter. Well, in fact, it was 2006 that we joined what was then my dad's business um, and started to launch these series of property courses. Um, That truly, Colin, was a lot of luck. I mean, I, I think... We, we, we applied some smarts in the sense that we had some educational background, some technology background and so on. And we were very lucky that my father's an adjunct professor at the University of Cape Town and had deep trusted ties with the law faculty. Um, and, you, you know, the lucky part there was also that we managed to find an individual, a lady called Irena Vassafal within the law faculty who was incredibly progressive. So in 2006, the idea of universities offering online programs Online was seen as this kind of dirty, dirty word like e-learning was kind of it was associated with the kind of cheap and tacky corporate education um, and universities had done very little, especially in South Africa, as it relate, relates to online education at that point. So truly, there was a lot of luck there by getting having this incredibly visionary stakeholder within the university who was willing to take a chance with us. And thankfully, we had a we offered a product to a market at a time when they actually needed it. Um, so, yeah, there was some smart supply, but but a lot of luck. How much, and that's, I think, a learning point, how important for anyone, it doesn't matter if you're in a corporate or an entrepreneur, is that that network? I mean, you also had the benefit, your father um, was quite instrumental in getting you started as well, for example. Absolutely huge. I mean, it's... It makes it it makes a tangible difference, and I think the the but what I would relate it back to to aspiring entrepreneurs. The question that I'll ask you is, what are the opportunities that are closest to you? One of the challenges with entrepreneurship is it's constantly tempting to think about that the fact that the grass is green on the other side. There's some other world that I don't necessarily I'm not close to, but I can, you know in my mind I can see how it's just going to be huge and how it's going to be this massive opportunity. I guess my my reality check for you would be the best opportunities inevitably are the ones that are closest to you. The ones where you actually understand the dynamics of the market, you've been immersed in that space for a while, you've got some existing networks and connections. 
the, the, the game of entrepreneurship is a game of learning. How quickly can you learn and how quickly can you develop your understanding and pivot your, your product offering and your marketing strategies and so on in order to meet a real market need that people are prepared to pay you more money than it costs you to deliver your product service, whatever it may be. And yeah. those inevitably, this kind of, when you can catapult your learning by actually already being close to a particular market segment or, or opportunity, it makes a huge difference to the prospects of you actually succeeding. Yeah. So you've got your network, uh, you've got some experience in this particular field, but we're at the nascent stage of online learning. I think at that point when you were starting down this track, there was no such thing as Udemy. There was no such thing as Coursera. Um, there were online platforms. I think there was things like Open University, you know, being run from the UK. But um, maybe this is one of the examples which people sort of stood back from and said, maybe that's not a real, uh, real course. Despite that, I mean, did that never worry you? I mean, that you thought perhaps it's a, it's a good idea. It worked in the property side of things, but this is probably too early. It's not actually going to catch on. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And yeah, back in those days, it really was a lot. Of this, the only real activity in the online space was existing distance learning providers. So you mentioned the Open University. That's an example of a UK uh, university that was a pure distance provider, almost akin to the kind of UNISA of the South African context. Um, pure distance correspondence learning, you get sent your textbooks and you learn. That was starting to get augmented with some online elements, but that was pretty much the closest thing that was happening in the university space. Um, Colin, yeah, I mean, we, we, we were concerned, but what I would say is that the fact that we were able to get such a prestigious university like the University of Cape Town to work with us, the immediate brand credibility and the trust that is inherent in a brand like University of Cape Town, I think for a lot of people helps, a lot of students at that point help them overcome this kind of concern slash um, unknown, which was the online modality of delivery. That said, I think that one of the things that, that it opened up was the opportunity for working professionals to not have to think about going to like a night school or a weekend or, or weekend uh, business school kind of uh, programs in order to effectively upskill themselves. And already at that point, digital had started to infuse our lives in different ways. It started to speed up our, our daily existence and time was becoming increasingly scarce. And I think that that's something that, that is worth reflecting on. Things have sped up a lot in the last 20 years. I mean, even since the year 2000, I, I've I matriculated in 2001. I didn't have a cell phone. Like I didn't have a cell phone for the first kind of two, two years after, after school. It just wasn't a thing. Um, and so as a result, I wasn't constantly contactable. I wasn't able to do emails on the go. The speed of which life kind of catapulted forward from 2003 onwards shouldn't be underestimated. And I think that, that finding more efficient and effective mechanisms to reach your customers, and in our case, through education at that point, um, that there was, a, there was a certain ripeness of the market, although they didn't necessarily know um, what the solution was yet. Okay, so you've now got introductions into UCT. What precisely was your idea where you thought you could help UCT in their education? Um, I think that so the, the university has always been, and universities across the globe have always been somewhat limited by who they can geographically attract. Um, it, it, there's a logistical and a practical and a financial element to that, which is if you want to be part of the university, you need to live in the, in the, in the reasonable proximity of the institution. Um, and the same principle generally applied for corporate education as well, with the exception of people who are willing to jump on planes and do kind of week-long programs and so on. Um, that was one of the major value propositions was just we can extend, we can extend your reach through a high-quality modality of, of education. And again, we worked very closely with the university in order to, to define the um, the the um, the educational model, the pedagogy behind it, how we'd be supporting students, how we would structure our support staff, um, the nature of the communication channels that would be opened up, and so on and so on. So we worked very closely with the university on that, 
Um, but I think that one of the realities of, of and you know, this is, not, this is not unique to universities, this is true for, for many big, bigger corporations, is that you've got a particular kind of sets, a set of skills, capabilities, competencies, your budgets are set very far in advance, and the agility around the edges can be, can be quite challenging. Um, so the idea of just like standing up an online an online offering is 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 something that generally you need to spend years planning and kind of and and, and implementing, um, and I think that's also was part of the value proposition was as a private sector partner coming in we will work with you to ensure that you have full control over the over the offering that you've got full brand uh, brand oversight academic oversight etc. But we will enable this offering with our with our more agile and nimble capacity. Um, and uh-huh. our, our, uh, some unique skills as it relates to online education and the technology that was required and so on. So let's go on to that, because now you've got to start during this discussion to actually build something, because, you know, you've, you've, you've got the idea, you've got the, um, the support, the design support, if you want, from what UCT's requirements are. Now you've actually got to put something together in a package online with content, secure and a thousand and one steps that you've had to consider. What's the onboarding process? How does this go? You know, what is the uh, the data storage, which is going to cost money? How, how did you get into that? Because now we're starting to talk some proper dollars to get this up and running. Um, the 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 one one version of the answer was that everything was on a complete shoestring. Um, so we started we started that entire business with the equivalent of just under a hundred thousand rand um, at that point. Um, and we were, I mean, just incredibly grateful to my to my dad, whose business it was that we were kind of building out from, um, and he built he built a, a, a solid business over time, and therefore had the cash flow to support this new initiative and so on. So just eternally grateful for what that represented. Um, but then the then the requirement at that point is keep everything lean. I mean, it was it was literally the four of us with one marketing person that you you just you just figure your way through everything. So. I wouldn't be able to account to you exactly how we did everything, but you know you have to step back from this. You have to plan to the best degree that you can, and then once you actually get into the detail, you realize that you've missed. You haven't considered three hundred other things, <laughs> and you have to. And and uh, you know I've I've said often that the, the role of leadership is 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 problem solving. You know, like most of the time you're just solving problems. You're figuring out there, there is a picture here, and it's currently broken up as a as a series of puzzle pieces. How do you fit the pieces together? Within the t- within the kind of time constraints, the resource constraints, and so on that you that you have available. Um, and where, so where did you I, find I, the talent to build it? The coders, or was it a so mixture of? My, my brother's background was in technology, and he literally did everything to do with the tech. Everything. I mean, like, and and again, when you look back on the stuff now, you think, "Jeepers, how did we how did we get away with it?" But it was at the time, it was it was actually quite it was quite um, it was it was fairly significant. Um, but no, it was I guess it was a it was a um, I said this before as well. I, I genuinely believe that the primary currency of, of education is learning, which is then followed by the currency of, of, of dollars and rands. That, that ability to back yourself, to figure out problems, to learn what you need to learn as you're going and, um, and really keep things tight and agile could not be more important in early stage. The other great benefit of that is that when you're the person that's taking, receiving the, the marketing calls and you're having discussions with potential customers and so on, you get you very close to this rich source of insights as to what people are actually looking for, what are their concerns, what are their current bandwidth constraints and so on. So that you're constantly, because you're involved in so many of the details, you're able to pivot and, and iterate. You're offering quite literally in real time as you're going. The, the detraction from that, of course, is that you work yourself into the ground and it's not sustainable at all and so on. But 
to to at the at the early stages, I guess that would be just a strong point of encouragement. You can't afford to let your you, you can't afford to get far away from your from your customers. Um, and it's actually mm-hmm. incidentally a bit of a mistake that I've made now launching my uh, launching this next business, which I've now uh, very quickly course corrected from. Um, but it's very tempting to think, oh, let me raise some capital and we'll get the team, we'll build it out, and you kind of you guys do your thing and I'll do my thing. You really have to stay close 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 to the ground in the in the early stages. So stay close to your customers. Make sure that you're working in your sort of passion, you know, what you're connected to. Make sure that you're using your network, three massive advantages. Another piece that startups always talk about is burn rate and making sure that you have an end date. If this doesn't go well, we're going to call it a day in June 2000, whatever. Did you have an end date where you thought we're just going to run this and once we get through the 100,000 round, if it's not working, we'll, we'll close shop and do something else, get a boring job? You know, because we were lucky and we saw that the registration started coming in quite early, no, um, we didn't. We didn't even, we weren't forced to think about that. Um, I can tell you with other businesses that have failed that I have have had that that experience. And, you know, it, it, it's critical. I think the um, you've always got these kind of inflection points where it's either we carry on and we believe in the future, even though there's always risk and nothing is ever certain, or... So I guess there's three options, or you kind of see this endpoint. You've tried your best. You close up shop. Shop. Third, third use case potentially is we've learned a lot and we figured out that this iteration of our product isn't the correct one for what the market is looking for. But if we change these three things, we feel sufficiently close to the market now that if we were to pivot, we believe that we can meet a real market need. And that might at that stage then mean big borrowing, stealing, raising some capital, etc., to to further the runway. Um, but I think it's a very dynamic, fluid process, Colin. I don't think that there's any one set of rules that one can apply across the board. Um, that you know, you run out of money, you run out of money, and that's it. You can't pay salaries, you can't deliver your service, and so on. So there is a there's a very finite point where if you can't either get more money from customers or rate, raise more capital or big borrow steel to to kind of float the business, you will close. So I mean, that's almost that almost is is, is a given. But in between here and there, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of steps and opportunities to course correct. And and again, that's what I would say is the most important requirement of an entrepreneur is to stay close and to and to be willing to course correct and to not be not be so attached to your idea that through ego you continue to stay to to pursue a path that is that is not showing efficacy mm. so two of the things that i think or, or one combined if you want that i think really differentiated get smarter from even the, the you know the corsairs and the udemies that came later was the fact that you have detailed insights about what the learners are actually doing through the platform and you have course correction through mentors, not teachers necessarily, almost like a CRM oversight of what those learners are doing. When did you come up and find that piece? Because a lot of courses just throw content out there and they get really low rates, you know, 10, 15% maybe complete it. Your course completion rate at the relevant standard for UCT, which drove them forward, was around 90%. So, so when was it you found this sort of magic secret ingredient? Was it right from the start? It was very early on, Colin. So that, that again, just huge credit to my brother. Um, it, was, it was fairly rudimentary in the beginning, but, you know, even with, with, I think one of the great affordances of online education is this ability to track and monitor how students are progressing with a, with a level of, of um, let's call it data accuracy that is very difficult to, to glean in the, in the traditional classroom. Teachers have to rely on a very kind of intuitive sense of how students are faring, um, and that gets harder 
to, to in fact not just harder that becomes impossible to scale if you start to move it beyond kind of the 30 odd students within the classroom and so on um in the online modality that of course and i don't need to, to tout the benefits of, of of big data it's i think it's obvious um but that that is a very real opportunity in in the world of teaching and learning online right now um our early earlier start with that with that column was just simple metrics like have you logged in every day or not like not even down to what was your relative participation rate in the discussion forums relative to your peers? To what degree were you initiating conversations versus responding to conversation? I mean, you can get amazing levels of granularity now that we've, that we've developed over time. Um, but in the early days, just like, did you log on or not? And from there, it was, did you, uh, it was, it was proactive reminders like, uh, you've got an assignment coming up on Wednesday, it's Monday, and I see you haven't yet downloaded your assignment that you need to complete. Uh, this is a nudge to keep you on track. So there's this kind of, um, there's a coaching element. So we refer to these individuals as, as course coaches. We've now kind of update, amended that to be kind of student success managers. Um, but the idea of having a coach who is taking a personal interest in how you are faring, they're not a subject matter expert and that's not the expectation. Um, they typically come from a counseling, coaching or psychology background and their role is to keep you on track with your studies. And I think it's it's easy to, to, um, to underestimate the fact that people are super busy in this day and age and pushing yourself in the context of learning is actually quite a it's it's a process that makes you quite vulnerable i mean anytime you're really going to make magnificent leaps in terms of your own learning it's because you've been you've allowed yourself to kind of expose yourself to a set of activities and engagements where you don't yet have the capacity the, the capabilities and there's an insecurity that comes with that so for a lot of us my my diagnosis has been that a lot of the things that hold us back from learning is not our intellectual capacity to engage it's the more kind of um, insecurity and heartfelt elements of just like not feeling confident or comfortable enough to go. So these coaches enabled by learning analytics, but then, but then amplified by their, by their kind of psychology and counseling skills, their role is really to, is really to connect with the students on a human to human level and, and believe in them. You know, we often refer to them as our students, number one cheerleaders. Um, and that makes a huge difference. And in the traditional classroom, it's one of the functions that teachers perform, um, but it's a totally separate conversation. But I believe, I strongly believe teachers do way too many things. Like it, their job description includes about 15 different job titles, which at least from my estimation is one of the reasons that education currently doesn't scale. And one of the things that I'm obsessed about sol solving through through businesses like Get Smarter and now Valencia. So when you were going, I mean, you've opened up a, a whole rabbit warren of potential paths we can go down now because the things that you've just explained there weren't even things so you're running effectively uh, tech driven nudges to go and encourage your customers to do there's no ai so you've got big mapping tables i assume sitting there going if this event happens do this so uh, you must have been putting a lot of time in that at some point you then step back and you go whoa let's go and bring in some real people because we're getting the data so we've got to go and do that and then that's starts to manifest there's a thing here because we're seeing an uptick in the data so you're already doing a test learn iterate model as you're experimenting things i'm not sure how popular that was then you've now got this this decision to make because you need more people for this to operate and to get these high pass marks how did you decide whether you should hire them or whether you should effectively crowdsource them and, and bring them in and, and so that you can scale what, what was the decision yeah. for that no we did and i'd love to say that there was more science behind it colin but at that stage it's like cool we actually are there is a business here we're generating revenue it's clear i mean we we knew we needed 30 students to to break even and we ended up getting 290 on that first presentation so at that point yeah we're, we're hiring we're putting people in place um we had these kind of these these coaches from from the get-go 
Um, exactly what they were doing was was TBD, <laughs> but, um, but we, we certainly hired some additional capacity from, from the get-go. It was really, the, the build stage was probably the, the, the time that, that, before it was clear that this thing was going, was, was viable, um, was probably the most lean, um, most lean time. Okay. Now you start growing, you start going from there's 200 students to hundreds of thousands of students over the years. So how did you handle that growth? What, you know, how did you make sure that this tight ship that you started with where you've employed everyone is, is excellent quality, very well supported with your anchor tenant clients, and you've now got tens, then potentially hundreds of clients and the hundreds of thousands of end clients, B2B to C that are now on the platform. How, how did you try to organize that so that it was still awesome quality? Yeah, Jeepers. I mean, there's, there's so many angles that we, we could take to answer that question. I would start start with this one, though. It's always fundamentally a, a human challenge. Um, when we think about supporting, in this case, kind of fast scaling organizations and so on, it's always a human challenge. And so you need to start with, with the kind of with the the organization, the, the selection of the humans and the organization of the humans. Um, so I would say to anyone who's built a business or who is building a business, there are these kind of step changes that you that you experience. When it's you leading a business and you've got kind of somewhere between about 10 and 20 people, often you can actually keep your reporting lines quite clear. You, they report into you, you keep track of everything that's going on. And at a certain point that breaks. And that in my experience is generally around kind of 15 to 20 people. You then need to start introducing a layer of middle management, which means that you've got to kind of in between reporting lines who start to oversee functional areas um, and they then have individuals that, who report into them. And that's another modality that can kind of allow you to get to about 70 people. Then from 70, you start to, to have to introduce things like kind of a product focused areas um, across fun functional lines. And that starts to change your, your, your organizational structure again, which means that, that can generally stand you in good stead to about 150. And from 150, there's another leap then from up to about 300 people and from 300, at least my experience is that a lot of the kind of systemic org structure pieces can actually sustain you quite, quite, quite far towards the thousands of employees and so on. Um, so you've made a really good point. I'm going to just ask you a question to fit in there. How did you keep the, the authenticity, the experimentation, the kind of startup mentality as you're starting to layer your organization with these structures? Great, great point. And we didn't. Um, it, it was kind of like a, a constant kind of to and fro course, like overcorrect, swing the other way, etc. We... As you're, as you're scaling up and business is growing and there's a freneticism on the ground, there's a part of me in my naivety, and I think but I can speak for my brother and I on this, that, that probably more me, um, where you, you, you try to get to the point where it's like the, the end goal is that everything works. You know, everything's got its like nice box and it works and people understand what their tasks are for the week and there can be some sort of continuity in the way that people work and so on. You, you kind of try to then operationalize everything and you put better systems in place and you say, let's slow down on growth so that we can kind of have a year of consolidation and so on. <laughs> it's, it's such a load of nonsense in a scale-up environment. I think the, 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 um, the, the strong learning from my perspective that I would share with others is that if you're in a high growth business, you need to know what you're signing up for. It is constantly going to be changing just as you've resolved one thing and you've operationalized one thing, another thing is going to break or another opportunity is going to, is going to, is going to become available. It, there is never an endpoint where everything just works beautifully and people can arrive at their desk and have a predictable day and eight to five and I go home. It, ju it just doesn't exist, at least not if you have a growth, if you have major growth ambitions. So the first piece there is just get get the cultural expectations right. We, we now when we hire into Valencia, we have this section of our hiring process, which is called realities of the role, where we actually try to 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 
unsell people on the idea of joining us. Like, listen, I, I really want you to understand <laughs> what a day in the life here is like. Um, and because, you know, it's often said that dissatisfaction is, this, is the chasm between expectations and reality. And from, if you can get that expectation right and people know what they're signing up for, then that chasm doesn't exist. And in that context, if you've got the right people coming in who can thrive and who can feel inspired and energized by this fast growth environment where there is so much learning that's taking place, and we're being stretched and pulled and so on, that's what you want. But it's that expectation management, Colin, that just couldn't be more important. You've got to, you've got to get people in who know what they're, what they're signing up for. So let's, that's a good time. And we've got some questions coming through, which I've actually got to uh, remember to ask. Otherwise, I'll be told off. Um, and they are great questions. Do you think purposeful organizations are going to you know, outperform their profit-driven peers? Is this a key marker that's been important for you? Um, so I guess it's quite a binary question, and I wouldn't mind introducing some nuance into it, which is that I do believe that, that um, profit and purpose can coexist and they should exist. I mean, quite frankly, they have to exist. Like if you, unless you've got some government state funding or something, some invisible um, angel investor who's prepared to just keep money, pumping money into your business, like you have to be profitable. <laughs> at least at some stage, you have to be profitable, maybe temporarily buoyed by venture capital and so on, but you, you have to get to profitability and sustainability. Incidentally, it's one of our company values at Valencia is that profitability is, is sustainability. Um, and so I think that at least from my perspective, those two things need to coexist. Um, but, but one of my reflections is that, is that if you want to attract the best talent in this day and age, and if you want to attract a younger audience, if you, aren't, if you don't have purpose very much at the, at the front and center of your narrative, and it can't be in fancy one-liners or adverts or, or values that exist on a wall and that no one refers to and so on, it has to be in the lived experience and has to be shown authentically through the work that you are actually doing as opposed to what you're saying. I think that, that, that the tide is turning for companies like those. I think that, you know, I mean, there's many ways we can cut and slice this, but even where there's major, where there's major breaches of trust in companies like Facebook and so on right now, it's like, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Um, and I think that companies increasingly, one of the leadership challenges is to be authentic with your, with your employees and authentic with your customers. I, I mean, I can tell you that they are, hundreds of things that we're not doing well at, at Valencia right now and that still get smarter is, is not doing well. But when there's authenticity of leadership and when there's an openness to just being human and, and speaking your truth and, and being, being vulnerable in the way that you portray yourself and open about the things that you're aspiring towards and the impact that you're trying to have and the things that you're grappling with while you try to reach those objectives, I think that's what a lot of people want. And so I guess my, my to take your question a little bit in the direction that you didn't ask, but I believe that the most impactful companies right now are ones that have more than a profit motive, but as importantly, if not more importantly, are willing to be incredibly transparent about that to their employees and to their customers about how they're grappling to get there. Because the truth is that with, with purpose, you almost never get there, <laughs> you know, like never yeah. fully fulfill that purpose piece and that impact piece. Um, and you've got to manage these very real tensions in the business between like paying salaries at the end of the month and making sure there's runways, just launch the next marketing campaign and have a real impact and give back to society and so on. And I don't think that that's something that's, that's just like, um, that, that, that's either or, or that you can just, that you can just blatantly ignore one or the other. I think that people want to see leaders tussling and, and, and grappling with the tension point that that, 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 that creates. And again, mm -hmm. I think that the, that, that what, what employees in, in the market is looking for is authenticity around that. 
Well, we're going to have to introduce you to uh, Charles Savage and many of the other previous speakers because you're going to have some good conversations. He's the uh, CEO of Easy Equities. And a lot of what you're saying resonates with what I've seen them doing as they've uh, had their successes. Let's touch on some of these questions here. Um, where's it gone now? One of them was talking about um, collaborating. Yes, here we go. In your personal experience, did you harness the collective intelligence of your peers and collaboration partners to solve some of these problems that you were talking mm -hmm. about? Great, great question. And we didn't, we didn't get to it when we were talking about the kind of scale-up piece. And I mentioned that it's always a human issue. And one of the questions is, is from a human issue, how you organize yourselves. As important, if not more important, is the degree to which you can create learning environments for people to learn. Like your, your ability to learn precedes your ability to have operational and financial success and so on. Um, so without question, I think one of, the, one of the key requirements of a leader is to bring the outside in. And when I say leader, people need to lead themselves as much as they need leaders within the organizations. But to bring the outside in and to bring in intelligence and insights and to engage in mentorship with people who have been down the road and who you can learn from and so on, it, it could not be more important uh, in, order to, in order to enable business success. Um, so certainly the, those sorts of collaborations, that ability to learn from people around you, to infuse, to fill in the knowledge gaps and so on, I, I believe is, I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again, learning is the primary currency of business, which is then followed by rands and dollars. I'm just making a note of that because that's a saying we're going to have to quote you on many times after this call. Tell me about um, your next venture. Actually, before we go into that, if I can ask, you've gone through this effort. You've had incredible success. You've said elsewhere, so I don't need to ask it now about how tiring it was as you flew around the world and meetings after meetings and burnout and all the issues that go with that. But having got over that hump, it felt like you had anyway. 2016 2017 you decide to sell what, what was the basis for that because you were like, to me you were just starting at the near yeah. the curve to really accelerate yeah uh, i think it's i think it's um you know i don't know that we'll ever know whether we've made exactly the right decision exactly the right time and so on um i think that the the business has continued to grow magnificently we really created the the engine and the capacity for that j curve growth um equally con yeah to the points that you've mentioned it, at that point it was a decade plus and <laughs> it was never obvious that we had a at least to me it was never obvious that we had a that we had a significant business like again you you kind of constantly as a as an entrepreneur you're aware of the kind of four or five things that if they had to happen in quick succession the whole the whole house of cards could come tumbling down um so you're constantly living with that kind of stress and now you've got uh, approaching a thousand employees and that's a very big salary bill at the end of every month and you feel the weight of responsibility when it comes to that so the prospect of being able to realize the kind of capital value of the business that we'd built the opportunity to de-risk all the time effort and 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 so on that we put in over the decade that that, that preceded that and so on is very tempting um and so, yeah, I think I think probably the thing that 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 um, sealed it for us was just Chip Pausick and the team at Two U, who are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, we really got got incredibly lucky with the company that acquired us. We saw a cultural um, a cultural familiarity in him. He was a a, 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 a a owner founder of his own business. He walked the entire entrepreneurial journey himself, gone to list his business in the in the states and so on. Um, and the team underneath him, we just we felt a sense of kinship with, where we actually trusted that if we came together, we'd actually be better together. We would provide even more opportunity for the team on the ground and the students that we were servicing to to to, to really expand. Um, and I think that that gave us a sense of comfort and combined with the fact that you know tiredness and risk and so on. 
um, it was time to it was time to 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 I guess realize the capital value of the business. So you decided at that point to step away and to embark on some new ventures, which we'll ask about in a minute. Your brother stayed, presumably with the aim of staying for many years afterwards in the CEO type space. But then he also eventually stepped away too. Why was that? Is this this classic sort of, you know, you can't just marry two kind of startup and a, and a you know where I'm going on that, the Facebook yeah. versus, you know, um, WhatsApp scenario where you see it time and again, you've built it. And it just doesn't gel now working in the mothership. Yeah. And again, to 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 use great credit, I think that they created all the all the enabling environments for us to continue to do what we were doing and so on, and to benefit from their exceptional um, capabilities, capacity, relationships, and so on. So it's it's no reflection of them. I think that your world just so fundamentally changes when you no longer have absolute creative control of the business and you've gotten quite used to to that control, and that your personal financial circumstances have changed to the point where you can actually think differently about your about what you do and why you do it and where you're going to spend your time and other things that you might be passionate about and other businesses that you might want to start and so on it, it gives you it gives you the luxury of headspace to start thinking about those things um, and I would say again not be, not because of, of of anything to you but rather because of this, the personal change that happens in you when you realize a kind of capital event like this that it, it, it is, it's, 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 it's such, it's so commonplace with, with, with owner founders who then sell to, to not continue with the business. Also because you, you kind of, you're, you've wrapped up so much of your identity in this business and now it's no longer yours. Even if you still have, have a lot of kind of daily operational control, it's no longer yours. And there's something, there's something in it that is, that is, uh, it's difficult to describe. It's a, it's a terrible analogy, but it's almost like the baby that you have nurtured for all these years is suddenly taken over by someone else. And you're still, involved in their lives but they live somewhere else <laughs> it's like, yeah there's a sense of distance and yeah and again it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible analogy but it's the closest i've managed to find in terms of the, the, the feeling that, that that one incurs yeah i suppose uh, you and you don't see that very often zappos was a good example their, their ceo uh, passed away didn't he last year but yeah. he managed to keep his baby amazon gave him plenty of space you see it rarely oh. okay you've stepped away now and there's this big breath of fresh you know you've freedom i don't feel pressured anymore it's not going to fall apart um which must have been absolutely lovely but then you go and say let's go and set up a school online where the way i look at it you're taking even more responsibility because this isn't just a set of you know courses fitting into an this is your education this is your matric talk how did you get into this idea about you know going into that space yeah you know i guess the one thing i'd reflect on for people is that there is this there's absolute fallacy, I believe, in our culture, which is that there is this North Star, which is make a bunch of money so I can retire early and I can finally have some time and I will do all the luxurious things that I've ever planned to do and so on. And I can tell you firsthand that it's a fallacy. It's, it's making money. And this is, uh, this is in no way a complaint at, like, at all. This is a problem, problem of privilege. Um, but it solves a bunch of problems and it introduces a whole bunch more. Um, and we could have a completely separate conversation about that, but I can assure you it's absolutely true. One of the things that that I found in having the spaciousness was, first of all, it was wonderful because I needed to recuperate. I spent a stack of time with my family and with my friends and with my wife and mended relationships and things that have been just kind of pushed to the side because of such a bus strong business focus for a long time really got the attention that they needed. Um, the problem is that as a human, you stagnate. When you don't have something to rub up against and you're not challenged and challenging yourself, you 
truly you find yourself slipping backwards, you find yourself kind of the, the idea of kind of idle hands. I mean, I ended up getting super involved in like Ironman triathlons and kind of pushing myself in other in other areas. I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm looking for a challenge because it it makes you feel it makes you feel plugged in and you feel that sense of growth and that expansion and so on. But no one else is benefiting from this. I mean, like, like, so what if I come 500th in the Ironman? You know, like, like big blimmin' deal. Um, and I think that that again, the fallacy and and I, I think the opportunity is to recognize that the opportunity is in the challenge. The opportunity and the and the the what what we should relish about life is in response to the things that we're still grappling with, with the kind of people and circumstances that come into our life that represent an opportunity to kind of figure out where you're not yet free, where you still have room to grow, where you still have an opportunity to expand. Um, and without having, at least for me personally, without having work as one of those main areas of, of, of growth, I would say that kind of it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a good thing. Um, so how did you so come yeah, up with the idea for Valentium and what was the problem that in your mind you're trying to solve there's a gap for yeah so so in looking around then and wanting to get get meaningfully involved again had a had a good look at 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 um, obviously my passion is in education i wanted to continue in in the path of education and education technology um truth be told colin this is an idea that's been that's been that's been rummaging around the back of my head for for the last kind of eight years and finally there was the time and space to actually start thinking about it properly Start putting some pen to paper, raise some capital. The the problem that I, as I see it, is that online schooling hasn't nearly met its potential yet. Um, online schooling generally is incredible. Is an experience where people kind of have some content online that's dumped there. They can wade their way through it as and when they they fancy. It's kind of like an extension of of a homeschooling model with a little bit of tech added. Um, and whilst it introduces a bunch of flexibility for the parents and the students, it's fundamentally a compromised educational experience. And I think that the the a fantastic experience that we had building Get Smarter was that you don't have to compromise. You can have a, a high touch, socially rich online learning experience where students are connecting from all corners of the globe, um, collaborating around solving real world problems in a rich environment where there's a real sense of student community, ethos, purpose, and so on. Um, and you can put all of that together. And so I guess that was the, that was the problem that we were seeking to solve. Um, so started the, the Valencia Institute, um, that was in, we launched in September, 2019. Um, and we had our first cohort start with us in January, 2020. And then of course, um, COVID hit in March of 20, of 2020. And uh, the world of online schooling just kind of exploded since then. And, and again, like super lucky to be in that space at that time. It's, we, we put some, uh, some hard effort into, into getting there um, and being, and we were there to be in the game. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it, it's, it's been a super interesting experience ever since. And this is for children who are, what, 14 to 18? Currently high school students only. We are going to be expanding that in the future, but, but anywhere between ages 12 and 19, we, we accept students into our, into our high school program. Okay. And you obviously chose, um, you know, the uh, South African exams to, to lead them on to. So in fact, we, we have started with the British curriculum um, and <laughs> we are building out a, a, a version of the, of the South African um, curriculum for a version of our offering, which I can't speak too much about yet, but will be, will be coming online pretty, pretty soon. Um, yeah, I and think, how's, I think how's the pickup been? How, because obviously a lot of parents are going to buy into this. I do. I would love to put my children into this. This is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this as well, because you know, I really want to, to go and explore this, but it would be an experiment because it's new. Totally. And you've got this nice, and at, the, at your price tag, it's 
It's still probably mainly for people who've got children in private schools and they want to democratize it further. So you've got this kind of, here's a school which is traditional and the network's awesome. And that's as much, um, as much about why a lot of people put them into those types of schools. Here's something which is new and fresh, potentially better education, but gosh, there's a bit of risk here. What happens future? How, how do you get over that with the parents that are thinking about and concerned about that? Completely. And I think that the short answer is that traditional schools are wonderful for many students. They just don't work for everyone. Um, I don't think that our online school is suitable for all kids um, for, with all kind of personality traits and, and extracurricular interests and so on. Um, I think what I'm constantly trying to be clear about is that there is a subsegment of the current traditional school market for whom the, the kind of brick and mortar traditional mechanisms aren't, aren't optimized for, for who they are. Um, and I think that it's, it, in many of those cases that a school like Valencia offers a really fantastic alternative for, the, for, for those students. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got interesting use cases of, of students who are exceptional sports people who need fundamentally more flexibility in the way that, that their education happens. Um, we've got parent, uh, students whose parents are, are multinational corporates. I'm, ass I'm assuming that's exceptional sports people, um, not in rugby or cricket in the traditional sports where some of the schools tend to focus. Completely. So, I mean, it, it is, it, I mean, we've got, we've got an unbelievable golfer. We've got an unbelievable tennis player. We've got, um, we've got a, a, um, a skateboarding champion <laughs> um, and, and, and many other examples like that. So it's, it's often your kind of your, your less traditional school boy or girl school sports. Um, certainly. Um, but then again, like uh, sons and daughters of, of, of international multi -cor uh, multinational corporates, um, you've got individuals who have more of a fluid kind of uh, identity and gender identity who are looking for a more inclusive environment. You've got students for whom they've, they've experienced a lot of bullying and, and, and social anxiety in a face-to-face -face environment and so on. Um, so there's, there's so many use cases. I'm mentioning kind of three of about 10, 10 use cases and, and persona types that we find we, we provide just a magnificent alternative mode, mode of delivery for. Um, again, are you applying I'll, the same model that, sorry, I don't know, um, are you applying the same model that you learned right at the start where we said, you know, that found, playing within your network, that foundational tenant um, that helps you, what is your UCT equivalent in this case? the test, fail, learn sort of approach, the, yeah, the, using the community I, and, to collaborate, getting closer to your clients. I mean, this, this is the amazing thing, Colin. I would say that, the, that one of the big mistakes that I've made in this business is not staying close enough to the cult face in early days. One of the luxuries of having a bit of capital behind you and being able to raise some, some venture capital because you now have a reputation and so on um, is that I've allowed myself to get further, further away from the cult face, which means that we have made some mistakes that I'm now deeply committed to course correcting. Um, but it, you know, it's, a, it's very interesting, <laughs> even from, from the first business to the second business, there's now a whole new set of, of learnings because the context is different and because the capital, um, the capital availability is different and so on. Um, so, and I think this is, the, this is the magnificent thing about continuing to, to build businesses and is the fact that you continue to learn. It's never just like, oh, I've mastered it all in this last one. Let me just apply all the principles I've learned in this new one. It's not like that at all. I'm certainly not making many of the same mistakes again, but still, still making plenty of mistakes. What's your view on matric or A-levels? And where I'm going there is these are, what would you call them? They're, they're steps on your ladder. These are the certificates that you have in the same way your driving license gets you on the road. Yeah. You know, but when I look at where the world is moving, it feels a little bit antiquated because there are so many skills we need our children to have to be taught and practically 
for them to be useful in the new world that we're moving into, which are completely unrelated to a certificate. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there's a couple of ways to, to answer that. The one is that in part, it depends on what we're talking about, whether it's a national senior certificate or, or an A-levels examination and so on. I mean, there's some one horrendous stat that everyone should be aware of is a national senior certificate gives, statistically gives you no better chance of getting a job than not having one at all, which is really terrifying right now. And I think it speaks for, it speaks to the fact that we re, we need to think differently about what constitutes our, our metric exams, what, what subjects and the degree to which those are examined at and so on. Um, but there is this deeply ingrained kind of... Uh, institutional challenge which is that you have these these endpoints of something like a school which then results in some sort of qualification standard that is then seen as the as the expectation or the or the ticket to get into something like tertiary education um, and then from tertiary you've got this endpoint certificate which is your ticket to get into into jobs and so on the problem is in the disjoint between the different the different subsectors and this is something that, that, again, I can't speak too much about, but that, that we're looking to meaningfully solve in the not too distant future, is what, what does an augmented matric certificate look like that genuinely addresses the issues that students experience at the undergraduate level and, as an alternative, could provide you with an opportunity to fast track your way into a, into a, a digital economy relevant skill right now? There are ways of thinking about that, but it takes full systems kind of, it, it requires you to think about the full systemic challenge and to make sure that you bring in the right stakeholders from the different sectors to make sure that you're fixing the, the issues in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the joining points. Um, and that's something I'm su super, so sorry, I realize I'm, I'm kind of speaking in quite theoretical terms. And again, if you watch what we're doing at Valencia over the next two months, you'll see some exciting stuff there. Um, but really, I think that we need to think very differently about what the future of credentials look like. I think that if we're not, if we're not starting with the end in mind, which is the economic productivity of these learners and their ability to actually develop the skills and attributes, less even the technical capabilities, but more the kind of personality traits, attributes, and so on that the world of work is actually looking for, I think we're in very, very, very big trouble. And the good news is that it's solvable. The, the bad news is that you've got to engage multiple stakeholders throughout the kind of value chain to make sure that you create that alignment. Um, but with the right work, it's, it's absolutely possible. Do you think we're going to get to a point um, with people like you and, and others where education can truly be democratized so that we don't have this multi-tier system? Like you said at the very start, you've got a big you know, uh, step up when you're trying to do something if you know the right people. And education is a, a really important part of that to help you to get to know and build that network. So education has a massive limiting effect on people that don't get the opportunity to get one or get a poor one. Now, I know you're doing stuff. And we're kind of running out of time here. But do you think we'll ever get to a point where technology allows this to be democratized? I think that it's going to take us significantly further towards that, that, that gold standards of truly leveling the playing field. Um, it requires very bold steps from not just people in the education sector, but others as well. Um, I, I couldn't be, it's one of the things that drive me towards the space at the moment. And you mentioned that we have quite a lot going on in terms of the kind of the private school model. My 90% of my time at the moment is being focused on this, on this low fee segment where there is massive opportunity to infuse the efficiencies and the effectiveness of, of digital technologies coupled with real human support to really democratize education further. It's going to ultimately require collaborations and, and, and integration with government and, and funding support and so on to really get it to that kind of fee-free space. 
Um, but Conlon, it's possible. It's absolutely possible, but without the, 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 the smart and purposeful integration of technology, it is not. We cannot build enough schools or capacitate them fast enough with the right teachers in order to solve the education crisis. Let's speak about South Africa right now. We cannot do it with the brick and mortar model alone. We simply won't get there. Well, I'm absolutely certain that Stephen Van Collar, his colleagues at EOH and IOCO who are sponsoring and running this series are going to want to chat to you under their, their mission and purpose of solve. I'm absolutely certain about that. Joe, let's bring you on. What's your question? Oh, I didn't run a poll. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's too late. Good, good thing. I'm a poll, so you're good. I'll pick up your question <laughs> on my side. Maybe just one thing, completely energised by, by what you've said, Robin. I think specifically having school-going children uh, and those that have just finished school, so um, 2021 this year, you resonate with me across the board. And I think if we could change their minds and lives and opportunities for nine-year-olds, they say you can change the world before they're hardwired. And uh, what you've said, um, together with Nassim Taleb's quote around, we should reward people, not ridicule them for thinking the impossible, you epitomize that. So I'm genuinely excited and we will talk to you more. But the question I have is, it's about staying close to your customers, stay close to your passions, stay close to your network leverages, stay close to your end date, stay close to your burn rate, burn rate. How do you stay together? In 60 seconds, how do you do it? Um, most important thing is viewing is viewing all of these challenges op as opportunities for growth. There's a mindset that if you create an inner friction um, in response to the endless plethora of challenges that present to any, any entrepreneur, you will create a lot of additional stress, a lot of additional tension and so on. The alternative is that all of those challenges, problems, et cetera, still exist, but you're energized by the, by the opportunity to solve them. And you see them as, as an opportunity wherever friction comes up inside you as an opportunity to grow. Um, in addition, you've got to take care of your body. You've got to exercise. Like for me, I need to sauna. I need to cold immersion. I need to make sure that inflammation doesn't get out of control of my body. I need to eat good food. Really, really important. And you've got to sleep. The idea that you could that you can do all of this and not sleep is really, really foolhardy. Like, don't do it. Sleep. You have to sleep. You'll be more effective as an entrepreneur. <laughs>